my land and my people, the memoirs of His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. For many years, the government had been making loans to these peasants whenever times were bad. I found that no effort had been made to reclaim the loans or the interest and the amount outstanding had become so enormous that clearly the peasants would never be able to repay it. My committee made a detailed investigation and we decided to divide the peasants into three categories. Those who could not either pay the accumulated interest or repay the capital were freed from the debt altogether. Some could not pay the interest out of their annual earnings but had saved up enough to repay the capital and these were told to repay it in installments. But some had become quite wealthy since they received the loans and they had to pay both interest and capital in installments. These measures were welcomed by the peasants. Most of them had been worried by the debt which was hanging over their heads and they were glad to know where they stood. But the most urgent single reform which our social system needed was in the large private estates. These estates had been granted long ago to aristocratic families. They were hereditary and in return for the grant, each family had to provide one male heir in each generation to be trained and to work as a government official. Some families also made a payment to the state. The remainder of the estate's income provided the official's salary. This was how the lay officials were recruited. On these estates, peasants worked on behalf of the aristocracy in conditions over which the government had no direct control and the landlords exercised a feudal right of justice which they often had to delegate to their stewards for most of them had to spend most of the year in Lhasa to carry out their duties to the state. My committee and cabinet examined the whole of this ancient arrangement and when I received their recommendations, I decided that the greater part of all these large estates should revert to state ownership on payment of compensation to the families to which they had been granted and that the officials should be paid their salaries in cash. The land should then be distributed among the peasants who already worked it. So all peasants would have been put on an equal basis as tenants of the state and the administration of justice would have been unified. A small reform was certainly needed on the large estates which had been granted to the monasteries but we decided to start with the privately owned estates. However, before we reached this stage of our reforms, the Chinese were in command of us and we could not carry through such a far-reaching change without their agreement. But they had come with their own communist ideas of land reform, which the Tibetan peasants disliked very much. And if our government had put through this popular reform, the Chinese reforms would have been even more unpopular than they were. So, however hard we press them, they would never either say yes or no to this proposal. And finally, more drastic events overtook us and for the present, it had to be abandoned.
So we had made a beginning in changing our social system from the medieval to the modern before our progress was stopped by events that we could not control. There was still much to be done to improve the lot of the ordinary people of Tibet and I shall write in another chapter of what my government hoped to do in the future. Yet with all the faults of its system and the rigor of its climate, I am sure that Tibet was among the happiest of lands. The system certainly gave opportunities for oppression, but Tibetans on the whole are not oppressive people. There was very little of the cruelty of man to man which used to arise in the past from feudal systems. For in every class and in all vicissitudes, religion was both a controlling influence and a constant comfort and support. It is often said by people of other religions that believe in rebirth, the law of karma tends to make people accept inequalities of fortune, perhaps accept them too readily. This is only partly true. A poor Tibetan peasant was less inclined to envy or resent his rich Tibetan landlord because he knew that each of them was reaping the seed he had sown in his previous life. But on the other hand, there is nothing whatever in the law of karma to discourage a man from trying to improve his own lot in his present life. And of course, our religion encourages every attempt to improve the lot of others. All true charity has a double benefit to the receiver in his present life and to the giver in his present life or in his life to come. In this light, Tibetans accepted our social system without any question. And feudal though the system was, it was different from any other feudal system because at the apex of it was the incarnation of Chinrisi, a being whom all the people for hundreds of years had regarded with the highest reverence. The people felt that above all the petty officials of state, there was a final appeal to a source of justice which they could absolutely trust and in fact no ruler with the traditions and training and religious grace of a Dalai Lama could possibly have become an unjust tyrant. So we were happy. Desire brings discontent. Happiness springs from a peaceful mind. For many Tibetans, material life was hard. But they were not the victims of desire and in simplicity and poverty among our mountains. Perhaps there was more peace of mind than there is in most of the cities of the world.